Due to a technical issue, the audio for this episode is noisier than usual. We apologize for the inconvenience. Welcome, dear readers. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast. We are coming to you from the fun-filled Carol Shields Auditorium located in the fun-filled Millennium Library. We are, of course, located on Treaty 1 territory and on land that is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. In this episode, we will discuss Trickster Drift by Eden Robinson. If there is a book you think we should discuss in the future, let us know at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. I'm Alan Shorty. I left home at 18 and went on to become the branch head of the Transcona Library. To my left is... Hi, I'm Erica Ball. I'm the branch head at the Fort Gary Library. I left in my mid-twenties into a house with way too many other people. And to my left is our special guest. My name is Jordan Wheeler. Um, When I was 19, my mom moved out, and I sat in the front steps saying, you'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Trevor. I'm the third branch head of the Blue Real Library after Ted Benson and Evelyn Pish. So in a way, I am a sequel. (laughs) And to my left... Hi, I'm Kirsten, and I am the librarian of the Harvey Smith Library. And I've just never left. (laughs) (laughs) A good book can carry me away from an ever ancient ordinary day. we couldn't do this without you. It's your questions and comments that form the heart of our discussion, so make us laugh or make us cry by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or leave a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on the air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. In a moment, Kirsten will start us off by giving another brief bio of Eden Robinson, followed by Erica, who will spoil everything with a brief synopsis. Then on to our discussion, which you can get in on by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. Don't forget to stick around to the end for a special segment, Nerd Word for Word Nerds. We wanted to take an opportunity to introduce the fifth voice on our podcast this month. Jordan Wheeler is from George Gordon First Nation. He has been writing professionally since 1982 and working in film and television since 1984. He's written several books, including Just a Walk and Brothers in Arms. He's also written, story-edited, and show-run television dramas, including North of 60 and RenegadePress.com. A member of the Winnipeg Indigenous Writers Collective, Jordan has been nominated for and won numerous awards, including a scriptwriting Gemini. Winnipeg Public Library was lucky to have him as the 29th Writer-in-Residence this past year. You can find his books at your local bookstore and, of course, at your public library. Kirsten, over to you. All right. So this was a little bit of a challenge just because a year ago I wrote a bio for Eaton Robinson when we did Son of a Trickster. So I wanted to do something a little bit different, but you can uh, see the original bio if you go back into our uh, podcast archive. But uh, so I wanted to find a bit more information about um, Eden Robinson, and I uh, started listening to something called Fainting Couch Feminist Podcast. I just have to make a point of mentioning this. They interview women and non-binary artists about a range of topics, gender, politics, love, literature, in a podcast best suited for, to bitches, witches, and anyone who's ever been called hysterical. Anyway, this is such a good interview that they do with Eden Robinson, so I encourage you all to listen. Maybe we could link to it in our... I will definitely thing. link to it. You can hear her amazing laugh that one always reads about when uh, when you're reading interviews with her. So Eden Robinson is an award-winning writer who grew up in the Heisla territory near Kitimat Village, where she still lives today. She is a member of the Heisla and the Hailtsuk First Nations. She knew in grade 11 that she would be a writer when she read aloud a short story slash fan fiction she had written as an homage to the movie Scanners, and it went over super well. And she said, The class loved my fan fiction horror story of moody teens with the power to explode your head with their thoughts. And it was the first time I'd ever been considered cool. Her first collection of short stories, Trap Lines, was published in 1995, and she followed it up with Monkey Beach in 2000, which has been made into a movie for which she has written the screenplay, um, and it's being filmed in her hometown of Kitimat, directed by Métis Cree director Loretta Todd. 
It's not yet released. I was looking online trying to see. In an interview with CBC, she said uh, that the audience she writes for are her cousins. And she says she pictures her younger cousin in her head when writing and what kinds of stories they would like to hear. And by the way, some of her cousins are the band The Snotty Nose Res Kids, who were just long-listed for the Polaris Prize, and they performed at the launch of uh, Trickster Drift. Yes, and so that is uh, Eden Robinson, winner of the prestigious Writers Trust Fellowship as well in 2017. Wow. She also wrote a really cool bio at the end of the book that I encourage you all to read as well. It's quite fun. Yeah, for sure. I really love that she has somebody in mind when she writes. Yeah. I like knowing that kind of thing about an author. Because I often wonder that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Who is your audience? This is a big yeah. question for yeah. writers. Who are you thinking about? Okay, so this synopsis was adapted from the jacket of the hardcover edition. In an effort to keep all forms of magic at bay and live a straight life, Jared, 17, has quit drugs and drinking and moved to Vancouver for school. But his troubles are not over. Now he's being stalked by David, his mom's ex, a preppy, khaki-wearing psycho with a proclivity for rib-breaking. His hard-partying mom, who's also a witch, cannot protect him from afar. A year sober, Jared struggles with the temptation of drinking, the pressure of his new classes, and the need to find a job that doesn't involve weed cookies. He needs to figure out how to live with his Aunt Maeve, who has been estranged from the family since trying to rescue him as a baby from his mother. An indigenous activist and writer, she is blind to the real dangers that lurk around them, the spirits and supernatural activity that fill her apartment. As the son of a trickster, Jared is a magnet for magic, whether he hates it or not. He sees ghosts. He sees the creature that comes out of his bedroom wall and creepily wants to suck his toes. He also still hears the trickster in his head, and other voices, too. When the David situation becomes a crisis, Jared can't ignore his true nature any longer. There we go. Yeah, that is really good, actually. Really good synopsis. Have we mentioned yet that this is a sequel to Trickster Drift? I don't know that we... Oh, yeah. I alluded to it in my introduction, but... uh, It's the second of a trilogy. Second of a trilogy, yes. The third will be called Return of the Trickster. Mm -hmm. And we, we... eagerly anticipate its release at some point. This one was supposed to be released in October, I saw, and it came out in June. Yeah. No sl- a slight against the writer. That <laughs> sometimes it's the same time. Right. Yeah, yeah. they get pushed. Well, and I read, too, that Trickster Drift, that it's it, that was what she first started writing. That was the short story, and then it just grew, and then she thought, oh, maybe it's a novella, and then it just grew and grew, and then she started talking with her editor, and then they said, oh, no, I think it's actually a trilogy. And so she started with the Trickster Drift story. Oh, and I, Simon Trickster was then like a prequel, yeah. although it, it came out first. Right, right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is really know. interesting, because I, I, I thought that this book, like, I, I really liked Son of a Trickster. I liked this one even more. I felt like it had so much more, like, stuff in it, like, stuff that you can really get into. So if this is where, like, the core of the story is, then that would make sense. Yeah, so that made sense to me as well, that if this is what she started with. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, I just loved Jared so much, the character (laughs) Jared. I mean, I I did in the first book, too, but by this book, I, yeah, really fell in love. Well, and I wasn't the biggest fan of the first book, although I did like Jared, the character. I just felt like he was just surrounded by all these, like, mediocre people that I just didn't, you know, like the story. Uh, So I was kind of hesitating to read the second one, but it's like from page one, I was into it. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, now the rubber is hitting the road. He's left Kitimat. He's in Vancouver. We know who he is. You know, all that sort of heavy lifting was done in the first book. So we can just get right into into the story. And so, yeah, I just blew through it and couldn't believe, like, to my delight, how much I was enjoying it and so glad uh, I I read it. The transition between the two books is, I thought, fairly smooth because you're thinking, what if people haven't read the first one and they're jumping into the second? How much exposition do I force feed them mm-hmm. and while boring my, the readers who haven't read the first yeah. book but I thought she did a pretty good job of sort of transitioning smoothly into this narrative it, at times I felt claustrophobic we spent a lot of time in his bedroom in yeah. 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 it was mm-hmm. the bedroom is actually a conduit to other universe yeah. other what, what do they call them dimensions dimensions yeah. yeah so even though we were more or less trapped in his room with him a lot of the time it, it, it was actually a, a whole world that was yeah. unfamiliar yeah because there's like there's the world in his walls there's the world in his floor that becomes yes. like such a big thing later on in the story there's so. the characters that other characters bring with them sometimes they know about them sometimes they don't um sarah who can't see the fireflies without him yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
fireflies, so I'm just throwing that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, this book was chosen because Jordan Wheeler agreed to come on our podcast this month. And can you talk about why you chose this one, maybe? Um, I love Eden. Um, I'd, I'd read Monkey Beach. I, uh, in the writing circles, he crossed paths and hung out with her quite a bit. Oh, nice. um, my, my wife and friends have interviewed her, and we've partied with her. <laughs> run up her, uh, run up the tab on her uh, expense count, <laughs> which was then limited <laughs> in the aftermath. Uh, and I actually really, really wanted to read *Son of a Trickster*, so by proposing *Trickster Drift*, I was forced to read both books right. to, to catch up uh, the yeah. narrative. And I'm, I'm quite happy I, I did that because I can be a lazy reader. You, when you spend a lot of time reading as part of your job, your spare time doesn't often want to lend itself to. More reading. reading. Right, yeah. right. But yeah. uh, this, this is cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. So so is her laugh, the legendary laugh, is it that great? I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> for those who have heard it, um, you know what I'm talking about. For those yeah. who have, I'm not going to... That's a spoiler alert. I will not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, well, the other thing I like to ask if somebody knows the author is, do they, do they write the way they talk? Or is it kind of like a different... Um, she's a little more foul-mouthed in person. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's so she got, toned a, it she's down got for a bit the... of a potty mouth. Yeah. Actually, uh, felt, felt like it was toned down a bit. Even a bit more so from Monkey Beach. Although, you know, the characters, mm-hmm. some of the characters are, are pretty randy in their, in their vocalizations. Um, I like some of the characters in the first book. I mean, the mom's got some jam. She's got some issues. They've all got issues. Yeah. And that's, in the first book, I felt that at times I was in an episode of the indigenous Shameless. Oh, jeez. Um, which was fun. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I was talking to my wife about this when you know, when I you know, was finishing reading it yesterday. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I stepped outside to taking a break, and I went... Um, Maybe he's still a good guy, but uh, I hearken back to an episode of North of 60 in a line of dialogue I gave to a character named TV Tenya, played by Dakota House. Errol Knistel's character, Leon, had sobered up, and one day TV was not at school, so he was walking around the community and kind of hung out with Leon outside the school, and they were sitting on the swings, and Leon went into this full philosopher king mode. You know, the clarity was suddenly upon him, and there's silence that often happens in an indigenous discourse and TV one. You know what, Leon? You're a lot more fun when you were drinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't feel, yeah. I know it came across in a synopsis, but I didn't feel that struggle. He, he seemed a pretty devout 12-stepper. D- uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. seemed like he didn't have to go to the meetings. Like, it seemed like he would have been okay if he didn't. And well, whether The meetings were a way for his sanity, dealing with the magic that was yeah. coming out of yeah. and yeah. ironically I think for a lot of people because the other thing I love about this series is uh, there's no doubt cast on the magic it just is right mm-hmm. and there's no you know is this real is this not real he's answering those questions in his own head for his own sanity but a lot of times when people have these some call them a gift some call them a curse um, those abilities they will dull it with alcohol they will dull mm-hmm. it with right. drugs they will suppress it with these things and in theory what I've heard is once you do that to your body, they're not coming around or they're not making themselves known as much and you can you can shut them down. So it's interesting to read this take on it where, you know, the mother through math, through coke, through you know, all the stuff, him through his and his uh, cookies and his pot and his booze in the first book, the ghosts are still coming at him, which is, was interesting. Yeah. I wonder if for him the AA meetings were more to do about the the magic that was attracted to him than than the actual alcohol like he was using the AA meetings as a coping mechanism for, for the magic for the magic yeah, yeah. community support mm-hmm. yeah there was there was a quote that i wrote down and now i can't remember who said it um, on page 197 and it, it was magic can get you drunk too was right. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah well, and yeah. also it seems like Jared, he may have substituted alcohol for, um, like, smudging. There's all those really great yeah. scenes where he tries to deal with those ghosts, and it, it doesn't really yeah. work. They're still there. They just get annoyed by all the smudging. He tries and, cooking sage. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, exactly. And then all the ghosts are just more, like, annoyed by the quiet than anything <laughs> well, else. That's one of the things that I loved about his character in the first one, too, was that he just, like, he just keeps going. And he just, he's he's got something kind of solid anchoring him. 
and like he, you know he tried the, the all the different coping mechanisms but whatever he's doing he just keeps going he's like i'm going to go to school and then all these crazy things keep happening he's like i'm still going to go to school and i'm going to study and he just like he just keeps moving forward and he tries this and he tries that but i the only times that i kind of got like frustrated with him i wish he sort of like i wish that he, earlier he had said kind of what he said with with the drinking where it's like it's like these things aren't going away i have to handle it because he kept like it seemed like he kept just trying to deny that it was happening and i kind of wanted him to talk about it more with somebody i, but I found that 19, very frustrating as well i know right it's, yeah like, I, yeah i guess i get that but it, like i i but just as a, on a personal level I'm sure like, yeah, i find that like, one of the most frustrating things in books when the when the main problem is is that the main character is internalizing all of the problems and a big part of the solution is just talking to somebody i find that very frustrating when they don't but then just it wouldn't be such it. like exciting book right because it'd be like and then they talked about well, it and they handled yeah. it and it was over and, well if jared did talk like who would he talk to in the book well because he doesn't know who he can trust right yeah, yeah. But, he doesn't and, well so. uh, yeah he, but uh yeah she pushes him to places he doesn't want to go because she wants yeah. to play with the magic and mm-hmm. bring it on and he's yeah. frightened of that and for good reason and he yeah, keeps repeating I'm, I'm human like if that came out a number of times well, I'm human I'm human he was just really yeah. until the very end yeah. when yeah. the boy said you, you're a trickster and he said well but I, first I want to finish upgrading <laughs> <laughs> yeah because I guess it, yeah, it is more about it's coming of age right he's, he's, yeah. he's trying to figure out who he is it's not just about his ability to learn how to I think like a lot magic. of people who um, go through, I might be projecting, but a lot of people who go through therapy, go through 12 steps or, or to kind of deal with it, they're better at handling other people's mm. issues than mm-hmm. their own. Because he always had an ear for um, mm-hmm. the cousin who kept falling off the wagon. His name Koda. was Koda. Koda. Yeah. Um, when Sarah came along, he said the right things. Uh, yeah, but he, for his own stuff, it was all denial, all denial, don't want to talk about it. Like teenage boys. Yeah, yeah. Like pretty men. much um, like uh, every teenager. You know, 30 something was a wonderful series, but it involved a lot of middle aged men sitting around talking about their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, also, is not very interesting. <laughs> well, and yeah. even in the first book, I mean, we talked about, and this was before he got sober and went to AA, we talked about how empathetic, what an empathetic character yeah. he was. Like, he just had empathy for so many people, and we were just so... Yeah, he was so understanding of what everybody else was going through. Yeah, yeah. And so it was even almost even more pronounced in this book, even to the point where he's, like, cooking for everybody. Gosh, yes, I he just, just starts cooking as a coping mechanism. Mean, food was such great. an interesting image yeah. in this book, too. Like, all the, yeah. all the gatherings. Like, he went, went to yeah. Aunt, Aunt Georgina's, uh, oh, yeah. among the wolves, the koi barbecue. wolves, and yeah. all the barbecue, yeah. and all those great scenes of gathering as a family, eating, mm-hmm. even when they weren't maybe biological family, but, like, Aunt Maeve with all of her sort of... I love the, her, the her, invented family, her invented the, family the friends uh, and the around that apartment and, house yeah. and everything. Yeah, I just yeah. loved all those. Like it's almost like the book could have been called Jared makes friends, you know. And it's just, <laughs> finds, you know, finds, he his, finds his family, finds his family. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As somebody who's come to cooking later in life, I was, I was, you know, the spaghetti and meat sauce, and, and just yeah. the easy. Um, That's what I still do. <laughs> my culinary artistry has evolved in the last few years, and so I kind of connected to that. But it's also, I think, on a on a deeper level, and he mentions it when Nika comes along and cooks for him, and you can. Mm. There can be medicine. Food is medicine. Yes. And, and so there's a lot of power when you cook for other people. Yeah. That's why at feasts we smudge all the food, we smudge all the utensils, we smudge all the serving elements to make sure it's um, not to sound cliche, but coming from a good place. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, funny. yeah, because he did say when Mika cooked for him, he, he said. He was reticent about. But he also said nobody had ever cooked for me before. Yeah. Well, except the mom that won. Oh, they yeah, agreed. Yeah, they which was really an awkward. That is. <laughs> the, angry, the angry, resentful spaghetti dinner. Right. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I really like Nika as a character when she showed yeah. up and she forced herself into his life. Mm-hmm. And, and then when, when Jared was still traumatized by the otters, and then she distinguished that, oh, they were different otters. So it's all like hashtag not all otters. You know? they're, 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 they're the lake otters and the river otters. And, we're not at all like them. Yeah, yeah. The, okay. the, the scary river otters from, from the first book. Yeah. So, which which one of the questions we asked was was trickster drift has been described as a funny scary and magical what's your funniest scariest or most magical bit so i just want to bring in a comment from one of our readers uh amy ro 
wrote in this month, and she said the scariest and most magical, powerful moment was when David attacked Jared in the alley with the alcohol. It was such a violent and mean-spirited encounter, but caused Jared to truly transform into the bird. During both of these books, I've wondered what is really causing Jared to deny his magical abilities. In the age of Harry Potter, he has no interest in seeing how much he can accomplish and is openly frightened when Sarah makes him dabble to a bad ending. Why wouldn't he harness this power and use it as a tool instead of letting it complicate his already difficult life? So thanks, Amy, for those thoughts. That was a really, I think that was my first thought of, like, the most scariest magicalist scene, which then, of course, like, when it turns into him flying, which was amazing. Transformational. The transformational, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, that trauma. But um, But that scary attack. Oh, that attack oh, was just well, yeah. well, David. Anything with David, I was yeah. Like, oh, well, what's he gonna do? Yeah, and, and using the alcohol too. I know, and, but just yeah. But, but the idea too that it was almost like a rebirth in the way that he was back at day one, but he was a different person. Yeah. Uh, but it was a neg- yeah. like a neg- in a negative in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. it wasn't of his own doing. Yeah. But he was like, okay, now this is a new beginning for his therapy for his recovery. I have a side question about it though. Like, did he turn into a crow or a thunderbird? It's a raven. A raven, a raven. is what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For uh, much of uh, Dene culture, um, the raven is the trickster character. Mm. Um, in Okanagan country, it's coyote. In Anishinaabe, um, because there's no snow on the ground, I'm not going to say that person out loud. <laughs> the Cree have our own trickster character because there's no snow on the ground. I'm not going to say that out loud. <laughs> some are shapeshifters. Some are some are genderless. Um, it's different from culture to culture to culture. But they're sort of the um, the Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, but not just Christ. If you look at how um, Judaism, Islam, um, what's the other one? Judaism, Islam, <laughs> Christianity. Um, they kind of split their main character into two. So you've got Christ, you've got Satan, which are yeah. you know modern Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are modern <laughs> incarnations. In the indigenous world, we kept that being whole. So it encompasses both the yin, the yang, and, it, and it's yeah. internal. And so they don't teach us. We learn from their mistakes to a degree. And I think it's at the DNA level. We're a duality. Our DNA molecular structure is a double helix. So I think it's... It's both. Yeah, yeah it's not a false binary of good and evil. And you see that with the... Um, it's about balance. It's about balance. Internally, yeah. between people and with your environment. And I really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like that about a lot of the characters, too, where like they were the super powerful, scary ones, they, like, they just wanted to eat, or they wanted to feed their family. You know, mm-hmm. they started to eat people that we liked <laughs> but it's that same sort of thing it's like it's a it's the way you look at it it's like instead of these characters were all bad and these characters were all good which i really liked yeah and you didn't really know their motivation because their motivation was complicated it's complex yeah. that they like 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 aunt georgina you know at the end like she turns into a literal monster but at the same time when her grandson is he said, are we going to eat Jared? She's like, oh, no, no, he's family. We're just going to go eat all these family. dolphin people, you know? Yeah, yeah but, exactly. But like, like, even at that moment, when she almost seemed so powerful and almost villainous, she kept it in check, saying, oh, yeah, no, you know, family looks after family. Well, qualified, uh, though, she did kill him and eat him several times. <laughs> <laughs> that after, is true. After she was mad. Yeah. She was so, so mad. <laughs> But I mean, I mean, yeah, you start talking about that, though, and you get into, you know, like, the ethics of eating meat at all. You know, like, who, what do we decide? What gets eaten? What doesn't? Vegetarians and vegans have, you know, a very different perspective than people who eat meat. Uh, well, and, and so, even in terms of eating meat, like, there's some cultures that will eat dogs and horses, where mm-hmm. in North America, that's completely taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Although some people, eat, some people eat horses. <laughs> I'm saying they you know, basically the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I've yeah heard, some people. Um, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say this because I'm part of Cinnaboy, which is part of the uh, the Dakota, Nakota, Lakota world. Uh, when the bison were destroyed, um, which was a tangible effort to remove their food source, force them onto reserves, they were forced to eat their dogs. Mm-hmm. So now at feasts, they'll cook up a puppy just to honor those times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got in trouble when I was little once because mm-hmm. I was, saw a couple of puppies tied up to the back steps outside the kitchen. I started playing with them. Apparently, they'd already been smudged and cleansed. And uh, I literally got in trouble for playing with the food. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's all fluid. It's all a fluid concept. Yeah. Who's, yeah. Uh, who's vegan? At the, uh, do we have a... No, no I don't think we, don't think we have a vegetarian at the table. Any vegetarians? No. Nope. I dabbled <laughs> for about a year. There's a, wait, there's a potato. What do you possibly only eat potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> potato area. <laughs> Bananas. <laughs> I've given, given up pork, but um, if I can get my hands on 
some caribou. Man, it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the red, the red meat, I try to limit. But how long were you a potatoarian? Uh, I can't remember. What was it? Was two, it weeks? two weeks. Two yeah. weeks. Two weeks. I ate nothing but potatoes. Yeah. And just so I, I don't be like two weeks over uh, a barbecue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that part of the um, where the frustration comes from with the character because that's how as a way we do it as as dramatists. You know, nothing comes easy, and mm-hmm. the final hurdle is typically an internal hurdle, mm-hmm. um, yeah. an emotional you know growth. But I think for I don't know if any of you remember the ACOA acronym, Adult Children of Alcoholics. Mm. He's growing up in mayhem. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's alcohol, there's addiction all over the place. So seeking normalcy has mm-hmm. always been his uh, his outer motivation. Yeah. And being human is you know once magic kicks in, he still is trying to steer towards normalcy, yeah. whatever normalcy yeah. he can. And you know even at towards the end where what's that goes to and ah he's fine. And, you know, <laughs> how much of it is normal? How much of it yeah. is and, and the abnormality? The the magic just compounds and compounds and compounds and. He's left yeah. trying to juggle 15 ghosts and three demigods and yeah. <laughs> in his floor. And, it's, and how to feed them hands. all, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah the lost to his toe. Yeah. And, and, yeah. 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 yeah, but he had also, like, figured out how to feed some of these Roasting ghosts, the right? Yeah. 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 Roasting the marshmallows. And then he just that became part of his... Part of his you day. know, part of his day as well. Making and sure and, and making that there. great bargain with that one uh, ghost, it would, it would yeah, tutor him in, in uh, yeah. physics yeah. and while to let him watch, you know, Doctor Who and yeah. Yeah, yeah. science yeah. channel. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. yeah, I liked it when his name was Bathrobe. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was kind of disappointed when he stopped being Bathrobe. Yeah, I think one of the most poignant characters for me is uh, Shu because mm-hmm. you get that little glimpse into you know protect the family, and she was with. Eliza, she was with Olive, she was with the, the next father, and Jared glimpses all the way back to her death, mm-hmm. uh, the smallpox epidemic that wiped out much of the West Coast and yeah. created what, what we now know as BC. I think that was one of my favorite insights, was that character and how she was always, well first that she, when you find out she was dead, but she was a ghost, and yeah. then when you found out more and more and more about her, it just, I don't know, it gave that time perspective to the whole story. Generational. The generational perspective. And while we know trauma is passed on through intergenerational yeah. you know, genetics. I mean, was, she the, was she the character that was able to curse? Like, did she? She was the little girl ghost. Aiden, 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 I think. The yeah. boyfriend, yeah. yeah. She, and she really wanted Jared, Jared. to curse. She but wanted his help, and he yeah. just wouldn't. I'm human. I'm oh, human. Yeah. yeah. And there were other things that. that did that where you know, there was a, a comment about Maggie's mom having been experimented on. He's like, how, 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 how are you raised by somebody who was experimented on? And there were just things like that in this book that really kind of like gave more context than we had in the first book. Yeah, because a lot of the, some of that context we got in the first book was through Sarah because of her activism. And there was like lots of talk of I don't more and things like that. But this, this was more, it was deeper and yeah. yeah, and more just showing the intergenerational trauma. That's and right. dropping dropping us hints that might, what might be coming down the pipe in the third book with uh, talking to uh, Ma- Aunt Maeve, you know, she doesn't talk to Grandma or whoever it was, mm-hmm. and all well, the good reason for that mm-hmm. without any elaboration. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hmm. yeah, 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 it's gonna Where happen. Going? Yeah, I was so when it ended, I was like, what? That's the ending? <laughs> what? And then I went right away to see is it like this? Can I just put get the, the next book on order? But it's not even. Yeah. So we're totally going to have to do so the third book, right? I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did I do two out of three and they say, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so speaking of, of the fact that this was the, the second or the sequel, one of the questions we asked was, what do you think about sequels or second books or movies in trilogies? Do they work? Are they ever better than the first ones? And we did get some comments uh, people wrote in. Phil wrote in on our Facebook group and he said, uh, The Godfather Part 2. Critics often claim it's vastly superior to the first one. And that a personal favorite of Phil's was The Odd Couple 2 from 1998 with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Great <laughs> film, huh? I don't know that I've ever seen either Odd Couple. I have no <laughs> recollection of it. And then Carol, uh, speaking of another book that we've done on the podcast, uh, she said that I enjoyed Oryx and Crake, but liked Year of the Flood more, which I think is blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after we did Oryx and Crake, it was the first book we did on our first podcast. I went and I read the other two books because I just couldn't get out of that world. And I have to say, all three books together make this really interesting world. And now I can't think of Oryx and Crake 
without the other two, uh-huh. and 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 made Orcs and Craig a better book. And mm-hmm. and one thing I loved about it on the on the first or second page of Year of the Flood, they reference a rock hunk. And I was like, oh, we're back in this world. Yeah. You know, it was just so great to like read about that character again and, you know, and just get and see, and see the events of Orcs and Creek from a different perspective. So I'm not going to say so many spoilers. I don't think everyone of us has probably read, read the other two, but see, I, I, I recommend them. I was them. so turned off by Year of the Flood. I don't know that I ever read the third book <sighs> is, is kind of like how disappointed I was wow. with the second book. It's a tricky question because sometimes um, a series is conceptualized as a series. Other times there's a demand for a sequel because of the sales in the first mm-hmm. book. And then it's, you That's don't have as different. much time to con- you know reconceive it. So in those cases, I'm often disappointed the second, third books don't match up close to the first. But if it's been conceptualized as a trilogy, if it's been conceptualized as... I don't know. A whole story. Six, six you know, seven, whatever. Sixology. Um, yeah, six <laughs> then, then, you know, they've been thought out in, in a way that they're at least equal on, on some level. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, it really works. I'm always skeptical of, like, because I, I know there's lots of series in science fiction, and I'm not a big science fiction reader. But, um, I read a lot of literary fiction, and there's not a ton of series in literary fiction. But I think in this case... Because, and especially if she wrote Trickster Drift first, mm-hmm. I think maybe that's why this, for me, is the stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. maybe I like it even more because of what she set up for us with Son of a Trickster and really laying the groundwork for Jared, who I think is just propels the whole story yeah. for yeah. One, one, one of the weaknesses I thought of Son of a Trickster was that it took so long for the magic to kick in. Oh, see, that was good for me. No, see, I, I was I, fine I, I, with I that. Like, like, oh, why are we still hearing about this guy's horrible life? And then when the magic started happening, I'm like, okay, I'm here for this. So then when the second book started, all that sort of world building had been taken care of, and we could just jump right into the story, and I, I was ready for it. But mm. it made me think a little bit talking about the three, three stories planned out. You, you know, a couple of years ago, there's a lot of controversy about the second... Star Wars movie of the new trilogy, The Last mm-hmm. Jedi. And, you know, for good or bad reasons, some people didn't like it. But what was interesting is that, like, J.J. Abrams did the first one, The Force Awakens, and he had sort of planted all these seeds in that movie that he thought would bear fruit later on. And then when they hired Ryan Johnson, uh, they also hired him to write the screenplay. So he came in for the meeting. He's like, okay, so, what, so what's the plan? Like, give me, give me the broad story. And they're like, oh, there's no plan. Just do whatever you want. He's like, really? He's like, yeah. So he just wrote it completely. uh, And so it has no bearing on the first one. And then, you know, some people liked it. Some people didn't. Uh, And then they handed it back to J.J. Abrams where he's like, thanks a lot. You know, uh, now I've got to salvage something. And so so now he's written the third one. So that's going to be very interesting when that movie comes out at Christmas to see now what he he does with Ryan Johnson's stuff. And and does he go back to the first one? What a mess. Yeah. So anyway, I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm really really happy that book publishers don't say, okay, you writer, you write. Had the first book, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can come back and write the third. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's like that's the really the interesting point is that I when the question about about is the, the sequel better or whatever like the ones that I thought of right away where I liked the second one better were ones where it was a trilogy at, that's how it was conceived. So like the one on that I mentioned on Facebook was the Two Towers, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, because that has the ends, it has Saruman, it has all these really cool things going on. And you don't have all the setup, and you don't have all the like wrapping up at the end. But then I was thinking that there are sequels that I didn't like as much as the first one. Like the first Harry Potter book is the best Harry Potter book. The second Wrong. one was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with Eric on that. I thought they got yeah. personally worse. And then yeah. There was something more storytellery about the first one. But so, yeah, it just sort of depends on what the original idea was and whether it was a story that stood on its own that was popular and then they wanted a sequel. So, so, so. Uh, I was just going to say, I wonder if, if part of it plays into is, is how much freedom the author is given. And I'll use Harry mm-hmm. Potter as an example, because the first few books were very tight and concise. And I'm wondering if there was a lot of influence from the editor or, you know, in terms of shaping the stories. And then by the end of the Harry Potter series, I, I found the books very big and <laughs> bloated. And it's just like... You know, maybe someone needed to say no, like like a good, which is the job of a good editor, but just to to pare it down. Well, and I'm for the record, for the record, the third Harry Potter book and movie are the best. Well, yeah, yeah. the movie for sure. Good. That's like uh, Prisoner that right? Oh yeah, that's great. That's a great I think one. Uh, yeah. somewhere in the one of her bios or acknowledgments, uh, Eden talks about her one of her editors help, helping her, you know, through oh, the yeah. the magic. 
Trying, yeah. You know, they still yeah. we still need logic. Tangible narrative for you to hang on to. Yeah, right. At times, it did come out a bit when I finished it. Almost having read the dude who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, oh, Andreas yes. Thompson. When I read his books, when I was finished his books, I felt like I was on acid. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. when I finished this book, I was yeah. I was rattled. Yeah. I, was, I was little. Oh, for sure. Especially the ending. Yeah, yeah, the way yeah. it ended. I was like, and, and also yeah. just how like David was always just kind of just on Around the margins, waving to pounce. Can, you know, can we talk about David a little bit? Uh, I kind of didn't sure. like him as an. Well, I didn't like. I mean, not like personally, <laughs> but like as as an antagonist. Like I, I just, I, I was kind of bored by him. Like He's I too too evil. Wait, just not enough of. There wasn't enough of him to to really care that he was evil. I didn't even think of him as that much of a threat, honestly, oh, until the incident in the alley. It, like he was just kind of like. Like this background thing, and even Jared. Well, like, that's yeah. the incident from the first. Yeah. Well, that's what's yeah. really crazy about yeah. it was that he wasn't doing a lot. He was just there. Yeah. And he was like getting, yeah, he was lurking. He was getting ready to do something. And what's he gonna do? It's so and scarier. Like, yeah, I just that kind of very wanted Jared just, to get mom and back. You know, mm. mom come to Vancouver and deal with this guy because I, I, I always felt his presence, and he was yeah. he, he scared me. Yeah, yeah every time Jared he was, went, he was going to a meeting or going to work. He was always kind of looking over his shoulder, yeah. and sometimes he was out there, sometimes he wasn't. And, oh, yeah, it's so I, creepy. I just think I guess I didn't get his motivation. Like I like I get because he's a crazy person, which is right, right, which is not. What is yeah? What is his motivation? Like what is he doing? Exactly. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time with him, but yeah. he's uh, you know revenge is a powerful. Uh, he was nailed yeah. yeah. to the floor and left there yeah. overnight. That could be traumatic, even though he was doing well. something traumatic himself. Yeah. And you know, you, you run into I ran um, I won't say the university, I won't say the city, but I ran into somebody I knew at an education institution and she came right up to me and said, You're from back home. I went, uh-huh. She said, Nobody knows I'm here, please don't say anything because she was escaping one of these psychotic uh-huh. characters. Oh my gosh. And was still on the run. Right. 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 So yeah. they're out there. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. And I whenever I read him, I kept picturing the bad guy in Sleeping with the Enemy, the Julia Roberts. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> whenever, whenever I'm in my bathroom and and I and I fix the towels on the towel rack, I'm like, why? Why does that matter? That it's, that it's even. It's just like that. Guy. We were talking earlier about seeing movies more than once in the theater. Uh, I saw Sleeping with the Enemy. I think. Two or three times in the theater. What? Yeah, yeah. Like I, that movie really, really hit home. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying it did. What you can't say, listeners, is I mean, I was totally, of course, you know, uh, you know, in, you know, into the Julia Roberts character and her play. But then she also had that friendly boyfriend chap, the yes. bearded fellow oh, who right. was like a drama teacher or yeah. something. Got her job at the library. Do you remember that right. part? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Julia Roberts and Julia Roberts movies, I, I'd like to bring back to, I like that Kirsten mentioned Scanners again in her intro, because if you'll remember, that's our six degrees of, of Kevin Bacon, is that Julia oh, Roberts uh, was in Scanners with Kevin Bacon and that whole... Oh, uh, I knew that. That's why I brought it <laughs> yeah, in that yeah. detail. <laughs> Somebody on Instagram, uh, Christina underscore Melodies, uh, talked about great series, can't wait for the third one. And she said that she was so frustrated with the cliffhanger. It was exactly like the cliffhanger in the first one. It's a great hook, though. I will probably end up buying the series. So even if you're frustrated, you are engaged and you're going to buy the series. I feel like it's going to be the kind of trilogy that you kind of want to smush together in one book and just always read it. As one book. You know, like speaking, speaking of smushing, I, I have like both copies of the uh, tricks, the Trickster Drift in the first one, and I was just looking at the covers and how similar they were. Yeah. And I almost think like if you if you tried, you almost could be able to put them back to back, side to side. It reminded me of the very first copies of Lord of the Rings I had. Mm-hmm. They were paperbacks, so it was one big painting. Mm-hmm. You know, the Fellowship of the Ring was one thing, and then Two Towers. So I'd be interested to see when Return of the Trickster comes out and whether can yeah, I see yeah, 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 see if you can see, see, see if it matches up. Right? It's it's kind of like it's got the, the feathers oh. and the fireflies, and I don't know how it matches up, but it's definitely a conscious yeah, it effort. Yeah, like that. Yeah. So, right. so, so the, the first one is like uh, the feathers. 
Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it's like this, yeah. like wings. Well, I, don't I, don't think, I don't think it goes sideways. Maybe like, it goes like this. Like maybe that? Like, like, a, like a Mad Magazine fold. Oh. <laughs> 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 fold that together quickly. Yeah. So yeah. listeners, if you can figure out how the covers look like, write in on the hardcover version. www.sales-podcast at winnipeg.ca. Now, as you mentioned, Jordan has paperback copies of the book, and they also different covers, but also very, very interesting, very intriguing. Beautiful cover. Beautiful covers. Yeah. Not, you, not that we should be judging books by their covers, but still. I judge covers all the time. It's, <laughs> yeah, we, it's an um, art form. We now know that crows and the raven family, they're highly, highly intelligent mm-hmm. animals. And so that also, I think, lends itself. You know, she went with traditions of the trickster, but uh, just those birds themselves are highly intelligent. I've always noticed crows. When I was growing up, I always felt like there was a crow nearby. And now there's a couple of crows. There's crows that nest near my house, and I always talk to them. <laughs> and because like you read these things about how smart birds are, and how crows can like remember faces and teach the young who and teach their young who to avoid, yeah. and they have specific calls for specific people if those people have been dangerous and stuff like so that. You, so I always say, I always I go out and I say caw caw, and I say hi crow, and then I get in my car to get on their good side. <laughs> yeah. I really want to stand. Yes, exactly. That's the point. I really want to stand on their good side, and I like actually my husband rags me about it, and I say I'd rather make a friend than an enemy. I don't right. want to be. You're not going to be their your friend until you feed them. I, that's gonna be. <laughs> I, I probably will. And they like, not just like prepare a nice meal for them. <laughs> <laughs> really nice, not resentful. And they'll bring you gifts at some point. Yeah. You know, they will. They will do an exchange. I, they're just. They're not, they, they don't bring you dead animals. They'll bring you shiny little trinkets. And, I would love that. I would oh, love to be friends with the crows. <laughs> Does anyone have any thoughts about uh, the title of the second one, Trickster Drift, and what that sort of brought to mind for you, or maybe what? why it was called that versus I took it as he's drifting away from home is is Mm -hmm. kind of far as I got <laughs> like an unstoppable. I took it as uh, the Tokyo Drift, the, the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, I totally think it's a part of pop culture. With, uh, yeah. Trying to skid away from magic and drift, drift away from keep, it. Like, yeah, can't quite get there. Yeah, yeah but you yeah. can't. Yeah, you can't quite stop that force, that movement. I'm bending my body back and forth. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and for me, like it seemed like a like a, a larger canvas in the right. second book. It was all of Vancouver as opposed to this mm-hmm. tiny little Kimat. And I know, like one of the things I like to do when I read, I think mentioned this before, is I go on Google Street View. Mm-hmm. And I was delighted to find out that at one point in the book, Ian Robinson actually names Aunt Maeve's apartment by the address, 640 Graverly Street. So I went on Google's uh, Street View like a weirdo and actually looked up... <laughs> like research. Yeah, research the, yeah. the apartment, and it's exactly as it's described there's in the book. The there's the whole, There's a balcony and everything. And, and then I thought, well, why did And I, the sign. And the sign is yeah. there and, and everything. And, and I thought, well, why did I connect to the first book the same way? So I went on Google Street View, and interestingly... Kitimat apparently is not big enough for Google Street View because what happens is like there's a highway that goes through Kitimat and that is uh, Googled but none of the side streets are so I guess I, I, always, I don't remember if I checked last year, but maybe I, so I didn't have a good image of like the houses or things. You can see the main highway in and out, but nothing else. And I thought there was nowhere in the world where Google Street View hasn't gone, but yeah. apparently Kitty well, Mad is one of the last places yeah, that I is often so. documented. There's parts of Manitoba too. I was trying to find an address in Belmont and it's the same sort of thing. They have the main highway going through and then like one random street is on there from like four years ago, but hmm. that's it. What, one of the tricks I've learned on Google Street View is is going on my bike trips, is going on Google Maps and checking to see if the routes that I'm looking up have Google Street View, because that means they're probably better roads. Uh, I've taken some some other roads that I didn't Google Street View, and I've I've ended up on some uh, deep, dank um, logging <laughs> logging roads before. So it's a good yeah good. Wow. Um, I I just have uh, part of this uh, interview with Eden Robinson, and she talks about the title. Uh, she says the drift part is the he's sliding into a world that he was trying to avoid. He's not going to willingly accept his inheritance. He's the son of a trickster, but he's also the son of a witch, a very powerful witch. So the, the kind of supernatural being that Jared ends up being at the end of the series is very different from his father and his mother. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Return of the trickster. So before we get into wrapping things up, I want to bring in the last question that we asked on social media, which was, how old were you when you left home, and what was that experience like for you? So Marlene wrote in on Facebook, and she said, 20, to get married, which 
very good reason to leave home. <laughs> Amanda said, I was 20 and moved into an apartment by myself. I had $1,000 saved up, and almost half of that went to buying a bed. It was fun to have so much freedom. Even though I'm an introvert coming from a larger family, I couldn't stand the quiet. I almost always had a TV or radio on for noise. Mm. Which I've heard is often not an uncommon thing when people are living alone. So they always have the, the TV mm-hmm. or the radio. But I was just wondering what everyone's experiences were like leaving home. I know we kind of touched that in the intro, but it'd be curious to see or, or hear. Yeah, well, I moved out into a... Was it Abby House? house? It was Abby House. <laughs> okay. Which Alan Did we also... ever... We never lived there at the no. same time, though. You had moved out, okay. and then I moved in, and you know, kind of to the point of the, the comment there is that I am an introvert, and I did not do well living with multiple people, I, at all. There was just like way too much going on <laughs> at any one time. What's Evie House? <laughs> so Evie House was a house on Evie Street that some friends that I met at university were living in, and one of the ways that I know Alan from back. Then was that he was also he was living there. I, yeah, I was living there. There was this whole weird mishmash of yeah, housing groups of people. No, no, just, just a house friends. Just Winnipeg, with like three bedrooms and a three, yeah, three bedrooms in a basement. It, so it honestly started with a bunch of people who decided that it would be fun to live together, but it really, in retrospect, was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> it, it came like a rotating people moving in and out, and yeah, yeah. So that didn't last very long for me. I, I wasn't kidding earlier when I said I was nineteen. And my my mom moved out. I still mm-hmm. in the house that I grew up in since 1977, and we oh. lived next door before that since 1972. Mm-hmm. So my kids and I went to the same elementary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing That's I can great. compare it to, I guess, is when I actually had to leave the house uh, and <laughs> go work in Calgary for four years. That was the first time in my life I actually had to go. The first wife <laughs> made it clear there was no guarantee she was going to follow me out to this uh, far place out west. <laughs> Um, but I managed to find a townhouse, and they did I eventually move out. The kids came, and eventually the cats came over. <laughs> Everyone trickled, trickled yes, over. Gradually, <laughs> the slow migration. Yeah. Oh, and and she, um, Maggie, moved to Winnipeg in the book, didn't she? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she kind of liked it, so that was good. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. So for me, uh, I, I was ten years old when I moved into uh, the basement room, and I was so scared down there. I, I lasted <laughs> one night. I moved back in, in with my brother. Upstairs. <laughs> but then when I was 12, I moved back into the basement room <laughs> and I stayed there that until. Was the right age. What's that? That was the right age. That was the right age. 12 yeah. was better. And that was great. I had an ensuite. It, I, had, wow. I had a great setup down there. So that's why I stayed until I was in my late 20s. And then I left when I got, <laughs> when I got married. <laughs> See, so, yeah. We have the privacy. That's so strict. Because I, I grew up in the PAW. So when I turned 18, if I wanted to go to university, uh, which I did, I, I had to leave home. So I. But I just had it in my mind. Like, growing up, I was like, when you turn 18, you're an adult. You Obviously, you move out on your own. That's what people do. And then I moved to Winnipeg, where nobody yeah. moves out at 18. <laughs> and it was very confusing for me. And ended up, like, I guess, making friends with other people who didn't live in Winnipeg. who Because we were all, like, lost 18-year-olds <laughs> living living in the city by ourselves, where, where I guess a lot of locals just have the ability to stay at home until they're in their late 20s. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't wait to move out. And not because I came from a bad situation at all. I came from a very, so it's a very sort of privileged situation where I just really wanted to live on my own and be an adult and be closer to the university, but know that the parents were close Mm by, but... uh, yeah, it seems I like moved a out at 19, I think. Very yeah. adult thing to do. Yeah, to, yeah. To and I just out. thought, yeah, that's what I will do when I'm, you know, when I'm in university, I won't live at home anymore. I had no interest in being an adult. <laughs> and in fact, I decided to go to the UW over the U of M because the UW was one bus and the U of M was two buses. And I was like, I'm not going to change two buses. Now the car has the University of the North. So yeah, I could have I stayed at home. <laughs> And then my mom followed me to Winnipeg like a year later. I was like, no. (laughs) Celebrate summer reading at Winnipeg Public Library by registering for the TD Summer Reading Club. We invite children up to age 12 to visit any branch to sign up and get a free bilingual English-French reading kit that includes activities and a reading calendar. You can explore recommended reads, track your reading, earn ballots for draws, and write stories and book reviews. 
The TD Summer Reading Club is a fun, interactive way for families to support literacy and help reduce summer reading loss. And new this year, the Ready, Set, Read program invites kids to talk, sing, read, write, and play their way through fun activities that promote early literacy skills. The activity stations are geared for children aged 3 to 5, but the entire family is welcome to join in. Details on the TD Summer Reading Club and more programs and events are available in the At The Library newsletter and at winnipeg.ca slash library. Uh, now it's time for our most awkwardly worded segment. Can you tell me a book that you would also like? So we're going right. to do our book recommendations. If anyone would like to mine. start. Oh, yeah. Mine was um, A Nancy Voice by Neil Gaiman because it's also about gods and people interacting. And I feel like last time I said American Gods by Neil Gaiman. But there's just something about that, the interaction of like the gods walking among us and stuff like that, that I feel, and the humor that I feel like is, if you liked Eden Robinson's books, you probably will like those. Yeah, I remember last year when we did some structure, I, I picked Train Spying by Irving Welsh, just because it was another story about overcoming addiction and a bunch of mediocre people mm. uh, trying to over, overcome. <laughs> but this time I was full on into the magic. So I picked it. And this is technically a book. Because uh, there's a book in lyrics as well as music, but there's a new musical called Mythic. It's just playing in London right now. And it's written by Marcus Stevens and the music's by Oren Eldor. And it's the story of Persephone, Demeter, Hades, Aphrodite, and Zeus. And uh, Persephone, much like Jared, is a god or has uh, powers, but didn't realize that when she was uh, young because she was raised on Earth, unaware that she had these powers. So she discovers them as a teenager, just like Jared does. And she's tricked by Aphrodite to fall in love with Hades and is stuck down in the underworld. And, you know, she makes the best of it. <laughs> and, and, and I thought the one line from the last song in it is, you have to leave your mother if you want to come home. And I thought that also ties in nicely with the whole um, Jared story. So, Mythic, a new musical. Cool. Do you have a book you'd like to recommend, Jordan? Just given the, the theme of the magic and stuff and uh, getting into tricksters, um, Coyote Tales by Thomas King. It's short stories, but um, if you're looking at trickster as a, an archetype, I think uh, a whole series of stories there that really explores it. Yes. I'm going to jump away from the magic and more to the gritty realism. I'm going to recommend Requiem for a Dream by Hubert Selby Jr., which follows three semi-interrelated characters and their kind of descent into their drug addiction. And it, it kind of starts out very... I've, I've heard it's kind of been described as an inverse story, so where it starts out fairly light and you just follow them in this like horrible descent of drug-fueled darkness. One of the three most depressing movies ever. <laughs> also, do not watch that movie with your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Top tip. Top tip. It just made me think of uh, watching um, that movie, The Laundrette. Do you remember that? Watching it with my grandmother. The opening scene. Don't watch it with my grandmother. Anyway, that's uh, another thing. I think after Son of a Trickster, I think my book suggestion was The Marrow Thieves, mm. which I really loved. And I don't know why I kept thinking of that book when I was reading this one too. But I don't know how often um, talk of UFOs comes up when you're like having a family um, at the family dinner table. But it comes up around our household quite a bit. It checks out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were having gelato uh, last night and we were talking about trickster drift and we we're talking about magic realism. And then, of course, we were talking about UFOs uh, <laughs> because my sister's partner is Jeff Dittman who is one of the writers of the Canadian UFO Report, The Best Cases Revealed. Nice. So, also our conversation last night all, uh, has also influenced my nerd word, but that'll come later. So, this is a collection of the best uh, stories of UFO sightings and reports in Canada. You're already looking so skeptical. I know I have so many questions. Okay. Like, so many questions. Okay. And, and in there, there's also the uh, the story of Falcon Lake. And so before he wrote the book, and he still works on this now, there's a UFO like database, and every year they get all the sightings from all people contact them, and then they put this all into a database that you can also access, and then they do an annual report. And that was actually it's one of his first paying jobs was inputting data into this database. <laughs> Isaac's my son. While we're um, on that sort of connecting the dots with all things magical, yeah. the UFOs included, I, I'd throw Monkey Beach in the mix as well mm. because 
there's the Sasquatch is explored in a way that in this one we explore uh, Trickster to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there I'd have to also bring up my brother-in-law Jeff because he is just fascinated with Sasquatch, <laughs> like everything Sasquatch. There's a couple of writers I can put him in touch with who have done a lot of research. With. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to. Mm-hmm. I'll just remind people that in the seven sacred Ojibwe teachings, animals represent values. So eagle represents love, and wolf represents humility. Sabe, which is the Anishinaabe own word for Sasquatch, represents honesty. Oh. So it's an it's important. Yeah, it's important. Love it. Good. Great. All right. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, the part of each show where our hosts boil down their most prevalent thoughts of the past month into one word. So anyone itching to put their word out there? I like to go first when I can, because then I can just listen. <laughs> yes. So I was reading I was reading Louise Penny, and there's a scene where the, uh, the chief inspector Gamash has his dog, and... Um, meets another fellow and the fellow sort of like instinctively goes down on one knee to say hi to the dog and so he's thinking about that's my impulse too is to genuflect in front of the dog and I'm like and I'm like, well, that's that's true for me too I see a dog I want to go down I want to say hi to the dog so but then I started to like the word genuflection was going through my head so I wanted to look, to look it up so that's my word this month so genuflection is the act of bending at least one knee to the ground from early times, it has been a gesture of deep respect for a superior, so it's kind of funny when it's a dog. The Latin word genuflectio, from which the English word is derived, originally meant kneeling, rather than the rapid dropping to one knee and immediately rising that became customary in Western Europe in the Middle Ages. It is often referred to as going down on one knee or bowing the knee. In 328 BC, Alexander the Great introduced into his court etiquette some form of genuflection already in use in Persia. In the Byzantine Empire, even senators were required to genuflect. In medieval Europe, one demonstrated respect for the king by going down on one knee. It is traditionally often performed in Western cultures by a man making a proposal of marriage, which I hadn't been kind of thought of. And then as moving out of the house for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Merriam-Webster pointed out that it's formed from genuflectare, formed from the noun genu for knee and the verb flectare to bend. And it's the ancestor of a number of common verbs in English, such as reflect, to throw back light or sound, and deflect, to turn aside. So that was my genuflection. And now you can listen to everyone else's words. And now I can just relax and listen to your words. Well, I was um, equated genuflection with the sign of the cross. Yeah, me too. I've heard that. very common, yeah. Well, and in, in, you know, I I didn't, you know, go into more or whatever, but, like, especially in, in Catholicism, there's, like, very strict number of genuflection which leg you use is often important and uh, when and where you do it so yeah it's a big it's a big symbol but i like that that impulse to genuflect in front of a dog <laughs> <That really got me. laughs> so. well I, I could go next if you like uh when when this episode comes out it will be july 5th and july 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the apollo a uh, lunar landing mission. So my word this uh, month is Apollo. Interestingly, the Apollo mission was named after the Greek god Apollo, but the Greek god Apollo is not the god of the moon. That would be his twin sister Artemis. Mm-hmm. So if NASA did their uh, research, maybe it should have been called the Artemis missions. They should have planned it. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Also, with our family, gelato oh, eating, we had a lot of like jokes and a lot of yeah. NASA. So it shows me crazy. That's moving right words. along, uh, the, the Greek god, uh, he was the Greek god of healing, medicine, music, and poetry, and later on became the god of the sun when he would pull his uh, the sun across the sky in a chariot. And interestingly, this ties back a little bit to Trickster Drift. There are a bunch of symbols associated with Apollo. One of them is the raven. So I'm just going there, Apollo. Mm. I feel like they maybe they were trying. I'm trying to make a joke in my head about shooting for the sun and ending up on the moon because there's that that saying about if you shoot for the stars, you might end something about the, the moon. moon. You, you might, might reach yes. the moon. Oh, I always thought it was the reverse, and then someone corrected me. <laughs> <laughs> if you shoot for the moon, you might end up with the stars. Which to me sounds way better. No, yeah, you might end up in the stars. You know, like the, there's a lot yeah. of talk about the, the lunar landing this month. But one thing that not people aren't really talking about is the lunar landing conspiracy theories. That it didn't happen? Yeah. yeah. Like, like, do people... Yeah. 25% of people that were polled recently still think that the lunar landing was faked. 
Mm-hmm. Remember, there's that whole thing like with Stanley Kubrick, where they're yeah, like, did they, they hire him? Twenty-five percent of people, I feel like, you know, there's yeah. always going to be twenty-five percent of people that believe any kind that's of specific large, thing. That's a large chunk of people. <laughs> right? That's why we have One conservative in. government. <laughs> <laughs> One in four. Yeah. <sighs> Although, uh, when I did watch a documentary suggesting the Apollo missions were faked, um, I'm a fairly gullible person. By the time the documentary was over, I was a believer. Well, <laughs> a good half hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, like, my, my, I'll, 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 I, this is probably. Uh, telling too much information, but uh, my wife actually does not believe the lunar uh, landing happened. She uh, she's very skeptical. Seth yeah. likes to yell about it about it not happening, but I don't know if he actually believes it. He just likes to be contrary. When yeah, he's it. He just I'm not sure it. if uh, Marla just says it to get my goat, or if she genuinely <laughs> she like believes it. But yeah, she's gone on record saying. <laughs> I mean, it is an incredible thing, right? Yeah, like that. To, but, ha- to have done. But I saw somebody say somewhere that for them to fake it, there would be so many people that would have to be yeah. in on it. It would actually be easier to go to the moon than yeah. fake going to the moon and keeping <laughs> it a secret. But that was Area 51. That's well, true. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes. We, yeah. Before we wind <laughs> down this <laughs> giant rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. The, the book on Area 51 is oh. right next to the book on the <laughs> <laughs> UFO uh, report on your public library bookshelf. Oh, oh, <laughs> and so my word yeah, is um, Fortean. So as we were sitting around eating gelato, making jokes and talking about magic realism and trickster drift and... Uh, and Jeff talked about the word Fortean, and I had never heard that before. So it is named after Charles Hoy Fort, an American writer and investigator of anomalous phenomena. Mm-hmm. And I kept seeing that an, an anomalous phenomena. So anomalous That's means strange, deviating from normal. And phenomena, of course, a thing being event or process perceptible through senses. So, uh, Fortean means a follower or admirer of Fort, or like Jeff, who uh, investigates anomalous phenomena. Or you can also use it as an adjective, like ufology is a somewhat Fortean subject. Mm-hmm. Fortean. Mm-hmm. Not me. <laughs> Mine is the word pretty. I've always been a fan of the word pretty. No, but like, seriously. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, as, as last lines of novels go, it's in my favorite of all time, the Isn't It Pretty to Think So? And uh, there's also a very great scene in the underrated, the very underrated 2003 film, uh, The United States of Leland, which stars Ryan Gosling and Jenna Malone. And Jenna Malone's character says of the word, people don't really say pretty anymore. They say stuff is beautiful or cute. So several months ago, I was listening to a podcast called The Gist, uh, and they had an essayist called Eliza Gabbert as a guest promoting her latest collection of essays, which was called The Word Pretty. And I was like so excited. I was like, someone has a title, or has a collection of essays called The Word Pretty. So based on the title alone, I absolutely had to read it. And so I checked the Winnipeg Public Library catalog, and it wasn't there, which is which is surprisingly rare. They usually do a pretty good job at, of, of ordering everything. Um, So I called up Phil and I was like, Phil, we have to order this book for the library. And Phil is one of our collections librarians, um, so he has the power to order books. He was kind enough to honor my request. And if you're thinking, geez, that's nice, Alan, but uh, how is Joe Schmo Public supposed to request a book? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Uh, Because if you go to winnipeg.ca slash library and click on contact us on the menu, you'll be given the option to suggest a purchase. So you can make your pitch uh, to Phil or Barbara or Alex Ray as to why we need a particular book in the collection. And I have it on good authority that they try to um, honor as many requests as possible. But the reason Pretty is on my mind this month is, big reveal, the word Pretty finally came in. And I've been reading it and loving it. And most of the essays aren't about the word Pretty, but there are (laughs) a few that are. And I have an excerpt from the essay Meditation on the Word Pretty, which addresses Jenna Malone's aforementioned thoughts on the word. So... Uh, Eliza Gabbert's theory is, she says, a theory. Pretty has gone out of favor because we are greedy and we want the merely pretty to be fully beautiful. And we go around calling things beautiful that are pretty. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is a pretty book, too. <laughs> That's the other yeah. thing. When we were talking about judging books by their cover, I was like, this like this is like, a, it, it looks nice. It's got a good good page feel to it. And I like it. this trend of like sort of the, the small, compact. Yeah. It, it, it fits in your pocket. Yeah. I've tried. <laughs> Visually, it looks like an Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, yeah. It's does. got that classic that cover. Look but then I just jumped in my head that like Charity Lewis, Edgar Allan Poe, also married his 13-year-old. <laughs> I'm going to throw a word out there just oh, yeah. yeah, please you have the last word yeah. The last word And I'm going to butcher it Because it's not in English Kaneo Nascateo Now in you know, the age of reconciliation And all that kind of stuff It's International Year of Indigenous Languages And I put a Facebook post out there recently Saying I sympathize with settlers Who are trying to learn Because the more they learn They realize how much they don't know And you get more and more in there And for indigenous people, it's the same way. A lot of our people don't know the history, don't know their own history, don't know their own culture. A lot of us don't know our language uh, for obvious reasons. But as we transition, a lot of the reserves, um, Oxford House is now Bunabonabi, and South Indian Lake is now Opinapanapewin. Going back to the traditional names, yeah. my reserve is still George Gordon First Nation, but his in Cree name was Kaneo Nescateo. I'm mispronouncing it, but I'm going to assume one day soon my reserve, that will be the official name of my reserve. Right. That's oh, wonderful. Good. Thanks. Unfortunately, we have to sign off for this month. A big thanks to Jordan Wheeler for joining us on this recording. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. And thank you so much, dear readers, for tuning into this, our 18th episode of the Time to Read podcast. In July, join us as we read the Hugo and Nebula award-winning All Systems Read by Martha Wells. Get in on the conversation by finding us on Facebook or emailing us at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. We'd love it if you hit subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and we'd love it even more if you were to give us a five-star rating. Until next time, make sure you find... Time to Read! Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Time to Read podcast. We were talking about Trickster Drift by Eden Robinson. Time to Read is a production of the Winnipeg Public Library. Our panel today included Trevor Lockhart, Alan Chorney, Kirsten Werman, Erica Ball, and special guest Jordan Wheeler, author and former writer-in-residence here at WPL. Our webmaster is Aaron Seaburn. Our social media guru is Regan Brew. Audio production and music by Dennis Penner. Some of the comments from this episode came from Amy, Phil, Carol... Christine Melody, and Marlene. You can be a part of our show, too. Email us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca with suggestions for books that you'd like us to read and discuss and comments and questions about the books we're reading for our next show. Visit us on the web at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Check out our show notes with links to some of the things we talked about today and take part in a discussion about the books we're reading. You can also join our Facebook group. Next month, we're reading All Systems Read by Martha Wells. We're looking forward to hearing what you think about it. Unfortunately, oh. Oh, crap. Sorry. I repeat anything? Oh, do not do this to me. <laughs> the circle. Yeah, it's not a good circle. Because oh, I was gold. Don't, 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 don't. Oh, you piece of crap. It's giving me a not responding message. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's why I have a backup recorder, but it's not going to sound as nice. <laughs> I'm sure that's all right. But I'm really glad that you have that. I know. I'm glad that you have the It's the content that's gold. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Retro add some hissing and scratching. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're we're probably are going to pick up like the buses that. Yeah.